One of the ancient names for Earth. Yes. You're right, Doctor. But who or, or what are you? We are called Cybermen. Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're watching this classic series from the beginning to see what's still worth watching for a modern audience. Today we're visiting the Tenth Planet, William Hartnell's last story, and the one that introduced the Cybermen. I'm your host, and I admit I chose a bad time to vacation on the planet Mondas, but I couldn't help it because I got a great timeshare deal. <laughs> My co-host is Guy, who believes that humans actually landed on the moon in 1986. Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, boy, this is a story we've been building up to. I know, you know, you're not happy to see Hartnell go. Um, this is no, his final story. <laughs> I, I like that cranky old bastard. <laughs> and unfortunately, the only episode we don't have now is the last one. Although they do have, if you look in the background material, you can actually see the regeneration shot. But uh, it's it's just unfortunate that the very first regeneration you know, they don't actually have the story for. So the last one is animated, which does mean mm -hmm. I don't I don't know what all the contractual things are, but this is not on BritBox. Uh, any of the stuff with animation in it isn't on BritBox, which is yeah. kind of weird. I saw they have a very few episodes for the uh, upcoming seasons. <laughs> yeah. But uh, not nearly the number I would have expected because I had looked at a – Wikipedia article and it had lists of, you know, what what episodes were missing, and it it sounds like most of the missing episodes have received some kind of animation treatment. Not all of them. Yeah, Patrick Troughton, who's the next Doctor, a huge number of his stories were lost, but a lot of them are now animated, including ones I have not seen yet, uh, including his very first story. The uh, when we get to that, uh, which is a nine episode one. So we, fortunately, you know, we don't, we'll, we'll have to watch some reconstructions, but not nearly as many as, uh, yeah. uh could have been. Um, so this was written by Kit Pedler, who had started this season as a scientific advisor to the show. And <laughs> that, uh, I don't know, uh, he must've gone to the school of Scientology or something, because uh, <laughs> there's some stuff in this show that seems unscientific to me. <laughs> okay. Well, we will see when we get there. Well, he was, uh, the producer asked him to write a science story about something in science that he was concerned about. And what he was concerned about was that people are going to be able to start replacing their body parts with mechanical parts. And at what point ah. do you lose your soul? Right. So, uh -huh. so cyber men is actually uh, a spiritual run forerunner to uh, cyberpunk. Very yeah, interesting. <laughs> you know, well, I'll be curious to see how you think it, how they, what you think of how they evolve over time. But, 
you know, we've mentioned as we've gone through the last three seasons that writers kept trying to create their own version of the Daleks, you know, some monster that would survive and nothing ever did. The Cybermen are actually the first ones that survived, right, along with the Daleks. So, uh, yeah, I got to say, at least as no, I, I cheated. I looked up some Google images and in the future, the Cybermen will look more like actual cyborgs. <laughs> but in this one, they're just guys with sacks over their heads. Um, <laughs> yeah. So not an auspicious start for them, but I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. But one of the, and they were doing the best they could with, you know, what, what they had available. But one of the interesting aspects of the Cybermen is that they're constantly evolving. So pretty much almost every time you see them in the story, they have, changed their appearance in some way mm -hmm. um so yes they, they start out as uh mechanical beings with with you know stockings over their heads <laughs> we shall get to that as we get into it uh okay you know as we mentioned a story or two ago they stopped having individual story titles so <laughs> the first episode is episode one all right <laughs> And we start out watching a rocket launch, and then we get one of the kind of rare experimental title sequences. I think, what was the last one we saw? I think, um, uh, well, War Machines, maybe? Yeah, yeah, the War Machines. So here we get in a different font, kind of a more computery font, you know, the 10th planet. And then we get all of these letters kind of just floating across the screen in, in this font. Bad. Yeah, no, I think it looks fine. It's a... Um, it's always a little surprising when, when they change it up. And we're in a scientific and military control room in the Antarctic, and the commander is communicating with flight control. The commander is General Cutler, who we're going to see a lot. He's playing an American. <laughs> and as we'll see in this story, one of the things that the they wanted to do was make it a very international story, like everyone's mm. uh, cooperating on space travel. So we have all sorts of different races and accents and everything. So... This is General Cutler, and he's playing an American. <laughs> he was actually the actor is actually Canadian Irish, but he was known for his accents. Although I'm not, I'm not going to say this is the best American <laughs> accent. <on the planet. laughs> I I found it was pretty decent. There was once or twice I it jumped out at me like he if he's barking an order or something, you know, he'll do that sort of softened R that doesn't really right fit. But with it's not American. like actors today like Idris Elba's or. Alba's, how do you say Alba. <laughs> Abel was Idris I, Elba. <laughs> Idris Alba, who, you know, was in The Wire playing a Chicago guy, you know, and you would have no idea that he wasn't a Chicago guy until you hear him actually talking. He's completely British, right? <laughs> I mean, these actors aren't quite there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think the, uh, who, who was it who... Uh, and there will be blood. The the guy who played the man, Daniel Plainview. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah. Okay, he's actually Irish, if I remember right. Mm -hmm. But uh, you see an interview with him, and he sounds nothing like Daniel Plainview. It's just very surprising. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm always amazed an actress can do that because I can't. E I can barely hear accents. I certainly couldn't do an accent, and I, you know, I have no idea what's involved in sort of changing your voice that way. So we uh, find out that 
the head scientist is Dr. Barclay, who's going to play a big role in all this. And then they are communicating with the two crew members of a rocket uh, that we're going to interact with a lot. And one of the big surprises for Doctor Who in this time period is one of the crew members is black. Now, you know, we mentioned, I mean, there were black actors who didn't talk in The Crusade. And there was a black actor who talked in the was it the savages or no, no it wasn't the savages smugglers the smugglers we kind of had different opinions on that i thought it was you know a little embarrassing because they had him doing sort of a you know shuck and the jamaican kind of, guy yeah. yeah jamaican guy but i would say i mean this is the first black actor we've seen in doctor who who's really just getting to be a a person right i mean he's hmm. he's an astronaut and there's nothing funky about him he's not speaking in some weird accent he's just you know doing his job and and yeah. he's and he's not here for just a few seconds he's actually you know a key part of the story well that's that's debatable i mean the uh the <laughs> that those two guys in the space capsule that uh you see him a lot but it never to, to my thinking at least it it, it could have just as easily have been snipped out <laughs> <laughs> well but you do see him a lot so the actor is earl cameron and he played the character of Williams. He was born in Bermuda, and he was one of the first black actors to establish a successful acting career in British television and film, and he broke a lot of barriers along the way. And uh, he lived to 102. <laughs> and, you know, he in, in addition to being Doctor Who and many other things, he was in Thunderball. So I started watching Thunderball oh. last night. I didn't, didn't get to see uh, what his part was. Unfortunately, William Hartnell was not happy, apparently, to have a black actor on the show, and hmm. he made it clear to some people, but Cameron says he doesn't recall Hartnell ever being rude to him, and he also never cared about that sort of thing, because he felt like, well, if you're a racist, that's your problem, not mine. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, if it's not directly impacting your, you know, like if it's not keeping you out of something that uh, you're otherwise qualified to be doing or, you know, it, you got to ask yourself sometimes, do I really value this person's opinion that much? Yeah. That's just my And opinion. I think, you know, especially in that kind of time, if you're going to get through things, you got to have a thick skin, you know? Oh yeah. Now here's a humorous thing. So we use the Chakotoya script site a lot and I used it for this one. And <laughs> when he is introduced, they, identify him in this script as an African-American, which is really silly because he was born in Bermuda, which is not in Africa, and he then moved to the UK, which is also not in Africa or America. Mm. <laughs> so this is actually one reason, especially uh, I used to do training around the world for Apple, and I never referred to anyone as an African-American because they weren't necessarily American. They weren't, you know, like, unless I know that's how you want to be referred to, I'm not going to make the assumption that you're not Jamaican or, you know, from Bermuda or, or whatever. I'm, I'm, you know, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I remember it was some time ago now, but there was some uh, sports broadcaster who was saying, oh, this is the first African-American ever to set this record. And the person wasn't African or American, or or maybe it was just African. I don't remember. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of an awkward phrasing, I guess. 
Right. It's like when we say uh, Native American, you know, well, then you go to Canada yeah. and it's not a Native American, so who are they? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm a Native American. I was born here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, the other guy in the cockpit, the thing that just amused me about him, I mean, he did a fine job and everything, but he was the one who was constantly trying to show that they were in zero G by like moving his hand really slowly while he was, you know, uh. pulling a lever or something. And it never just quite worked. I mean, you know, <laughs> it just looked like he was moving his hand slowly. It didn't look like they were in zero G, but I, I give him credit for, for the effort, you know, yeah. now we go to a guard room in Antarctica. And as I mentioned, the director wanted an international cast. So they have a, uh, a guy here is a young Italian private, and he's got a bunch of sort of semi-nudie photos on the wall behind him, and he's reading oh, a comic goodness. book. <laughs> yeah. And he's singing an Italian song, so, oh, look, this is, an, this is our Italian. Make <laughs> it very clear. Yeah. He's uh, he's the guy who, who says, Mamma mia, bellissima, when he sees, uh, sees <laughs> yeah. Polly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And uh, his allegedly American sergeant. Now, this guy is really pushing the American accent. But, you know, it's just funny how, especially at that time, British people just didn't quite know how to do it. But anyway, <laughs> um, his sergeant is peering into a periscope that's broken through the surface of the snow. But all he could see is snow. I, I will say the snow outside looks pretty good. And there's a reason for this, which caused a lot of problems for the actors, which is... What they were doing, I mean, it looks really good. It looks like you're in snowstorms, you know, it looks really, what they were doing is taking like this cut up plastic stuff or whatever and, and using fans to blow it across the set. And it was like getting mm. in the actor's noses and mouths and it was driving them oh, crazy. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it looks good. So. You know, there's one scene, uh, I don't remember where it was. I'm thinking maybe it's a little later when the. The Cybermen are out in the snow, and they meet the guys who are checking out the TARDIS. But uh, at some point, there's something down in the snow, like maybe a dropped hat, or I don't remember what. But you get a close-up on it, and some combination of this material they used and the fans that are blowing, it looks like there's maggots crawling all over it for a <laughs> minute. But And then I blinked, and I realized it wasn't what I was seeing, but... It was off-putting for a moment there. But right. overall, it is a good effect. So, yeah. yeah, no complaints. So the TARDIS arrives, and, you know, they look on their monitor and see that they're in the Arctic, and so they dress up appropriately. <laughs> and Ben says to Polly, who do you think you are, Nanook of the North or something? Because she's in a big, <laughs> you know, furry coat. And it just amused me because... I guess it must have been a big deal at the time. You know, Nanook of the North was this sort of quasi-documentary. Actually, the the first film documentary ever done. And I watched a modern documentary, which is a follow-up on that, where they went back to, you know, the people who lived there and, and showed them the stuff in Nanook of the North, which was supposed to show how people in, you know, basically what we used to know as Eskimos, and now they're... Mm -hmm. Called something you else. Anyways, <laughs> yeah. yes, you're right. So it was about how as you know Eskimos lived and and all this and and they showed it to the people who lived there who you know barely ever saw a TV or anything and they were all very amused by it because there was a lot of stuff faked for it and also yeah, this uh, weird thing where 
the director got into sort of a polyamorous relationship with because you know polyamory i guess is part of things there and he got involved in all that anyways mm. uh, i highly recommend actually it's worth watching nanook of the north and it's worth watching the documentary about nanook of the north because you'll get kind of the whole picture since they faked a lot of stuff to you know to intrigue people oh so I'm assuming it came out around this time since Ben referenced uh, this. Could be. And then Ben and Polly go outside and, you know, it's really hard to walk around and everything because of all this, you know, plastic snow. Hmm. And Polly spots an aerial sticking out of the snow and then a periscope and they immediately realize there must be a submarine under the ice. And... The whole way they handle this, I mean, it's really smart because you have this set and you can't have a submarine, so they just have people coming up out of the ice from the submarine. But this all reminded me of our, I don't know, now long ago show that we watched, uh, Ice Station Zebra, if you remember. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because they had this same kind of thing, right? I mean, you had the submarine coming up out of the ice and you had the very, you know, uh, the people out in the ice and everything. So it's very similar to all this. Mm Mm-hmm. So back in that guard room, the sergeant is looking through the periscope and he sees people, you know, Ben and Polly, and he says, one of them is a woman. And the Italian kid immediately is, you know, fascinated and he jumps over and takes over the periscope so he can leer at Polly. (laughs) (laughs) That's where he says, you mentioned something about, oh, it's a Bellissima. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Very stereotypical. (laughs) And the sergeant identifies the TARDIS as some kind of hut, <laughs> which is a new one. <laughs> and I was thinking, you know, so, so far in uh, Marco Polo, it was a caravan. In the Myth Makers, it was a temple. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's always funny what people interpret the TARDIS as. Well, you know, in this setting, uh, what it looks like to me is a nice fishing shanty, actually. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. That kind of the sense. same profile. <laughs> So, of course, the sergeant wants these people in the middle of nowhere in the Arctic to be detained immediately. And we see Ben and Polly surrounded by armed guards, and they go through a trap door in the ice into the submarine. (laughs) And one thing that's kind of funny here in terms of production is Ben and Polly are totally alone outside. The doctor is not there. And then all of a sudden when they go down into the submarine, the doctor is with them. I don't don't know what that was about. (laughs) They didn't give a shot of him running after them or anything like that. But, okay, whatever. And in the guard room, the sergeant, of course, doesn't believe that the TARDIS is a spaceship. And he tells them that they're at the South Pole base of the International Space Command. And then uh, General Cutler shows up, and he's our crusty general. (laughs) And he questions the crew. Again, very American, seemingly. Uh, and he's not impressed by their story. And he orders that they be put in the observation room until he has time to deal with them. And in the observation room, <laughs> if you're paying attention, you can tell how they were kind of cutting down on set costs because the walls are curtains, which, you know, not exactly yeah. what you'd expect to find in an Arctic base. <laughs> I don't think I spotted that. Um, I believe you, though. Uh, you know, yeah, it's a convenient way to not even have walls, right? Just put up some oh, curtains. Sure. And, you know. and uh, Ben and Polly are disappointed when they look at the calendar on the wall and realize it's 1986, so they're not going to be able to go back to their time in 1966. Mm-hmm. And given that the actors for Ben and Polly uh, had a particular political bent, uh, I'm sure they would have been unhappy to know that Ronald Reagan would be president. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Although I don't remember him ever having to fight off the Cybermen, but uh, 
Yeah. Then, then again, uh, there's a lot of stuff that goes on that we never get told about, probably. <laughs> and we have a fun little prediction in the show because the crew is told that humans have already landed on the moon, which in fact would happen like two years after this show and, and long before yeah. the, the timeline of this. So, And now we're in what's called the tracking room, you know, and they're tracking that spaceship we saw earlier, but it's way off course. It's over New Zealand. And one of the things I liked and, you know, probably related to a scientist actually writing this episode is that the guys in the tracking room asked the astronauts in the spaceship to check places on Mars to help them determine their location. So I thought it was kind of cool that they're, you know, locating themselves that way. Sort of triangulating, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But when they tried to use Mars, they realized they're actually looking at a previously unknown planet. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, look at that. We've never seen that planet before. (laughs) Which is a big part of this story. Uh, And then when they try to communicate with the tracking room to say what's going on, their sound is low and the fuel cells are showing a power loss. (laughs) One thing that's amusing for me later is because, uh, you know, the power loss they experience and their sound is low, (laughs) one of the people says to them, speak louder. (laughs) I'm like, you know, come on, they're on a spaceship thousands of miles away you know i don't really think it matters how loud they speak but okay (laughs) and back in the observation room where the crew was stuck the doctor has written a note that he wants taken to the general yeah an unfortunate thing for the last hartnell story is he really doesn't get anything to do in the story it would have been a little better he gets sick in episode three as we'll see so he disappears for the whole episode but even then all he was ever doing is commenting on things he never really plays a role in the story which is too bad yeah so in the tracking room the doctor is brought in so he can talk to the general and he says he thinks he knows what they're about to see and then like a magician making a prediction he's written it on this piece of paper (laughs) uh, which he he doesn't show them at this point then in the tracking room they see the surprise new planet and realize this must be causing the spaceship to go off course you know because of the gravity and all that and so they've got to get the spaceship to do an emergency splashdown. I'm also going to point out if a new planet suddenly showed up, there'd be a lot more things going wrong than a spaceship having trouble. Yeah, and I mean, if they're if they're close enough to Earth that they can do an emergency splashdown, then the notion that this other planet's gravity field is having such strong effects on their ship it seems pretty implausible to me. I think it would be mostly Earth's <laughs> gravity that was affecting them. Yeah, but also so a planet that close would be, you know, screwing up our tides and probably pulling apart the planet or something. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And nobody saw it coming. It just sort of, there it was. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think uh, they don't say it in here, but the traditional idea of uh, people who thought there might be a 10th planet, which as I recall, I think like 100 yeah. years ago and stuff there was a theory that there could be a 10th planet and the idea was that it was exactly opposite the earth in its rotation so we never actually saw it you know around the sun and stuff now of course as they got sophisticated about space they realized well you know if there was a planet there it would be gravitationally impacting other planets we could tell that it was there we don't have to be able to see a planet to know that it's that it's there Oh. Yeah, there's uh, even today there are people who believe or suspect that there might be a planet called, they call it Nibiru typically, which would be the undiscovered 10th planet. And 
in theory, there I could go into great detail on this, but uh, that and it's not not I don't necessarily believe that it exists. By the way, but but the reason I'm moderately interested in it is because there's a book that came out a few years back called the Colburn Bible, which is a fascinating book. It's sort of like about the evolution of religion from you know sort of Bronze Age style religion to more modern day ideas. Um, but a lot of people take that to indicate uh, historical evidence of um, the existence of this Nibiru, that like the the great flood that supposedly happened sometime in the past, and many cultures have legends about the great flood, that it may have been caused by planet coming close to Earth and, you know, screwing everything out of whack. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, long that was a long aside, but uh, and the tenth planet does have a... Uh, long and colorful history, and is still men- still has many uh, believers today. <laughs> yep. So back on the spaceship, the astronauts are attempting to correct their course based on information they got from the tracking room. And I appreciate the actors here, but honestly, the cockpit is pretty much right out of Plan Nine from Outer Space. I don't. Did you ever see that one? <laughs> Long time ago. Yeah. So you know they have a couple of pilots on an airplane, and it really is like a curtain and two chairs. <laughs> and, you know, and this is not too far from that. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a terribly elaborate setup they had in there. I'll say. Yeah, and the spaceship controls are acting wacky, and the astronauts had to fight with them while pretending to do it in, you know, zero gravity. Back in the observation room, the scientist Barclay asks the doctor what this new planet is. And as they're looking at the new planet, the doctor asks if the land masses remind them of anything. <laughs> and uh, the funny thing for me is Polly keeps saying, that's Malaysia. That looks like Malaysia. And I'm like, who knows what Malaysia looks like? I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, it's just, yeah, I, I think that was them trying to be international or something. It's just Malaysia is not the portion of the planet that most people would point out, right? Yeah, and then uh, up, upside down especially would be hard. Yeah, because uh, we do, it does look a little weird. And they do, I think, uh, make it upside down to kind of make it a little more exotic and, and hard to tell. It turns out that a planet like Earth is exactly what the doctor had written on his paper, that prediction. And I'm going to say... As a as a former amateur magician, if you don't think this could be done through sleight of hand, then there's a couple of bridges I'd uh, <laughs> like to sell you. <laughs> yeah, the doctor explains that millions of years ago, there was a twin planet to Earth, you know, but the general's not interested in all this claptrap. And as the general and, and the military people leave the room, the doctor tells Ben and Polly that soon they'll be receiving alien visitors. So it's one of the, you know, we talked often about these stories where, you know, the scientist or whatever has this uh, amazing knowledge of everything that's going on. So, <laughs> you know, based on the fact that this planet showed up, the doctor knows there will be aliens. It's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and again, this this is probably self-evident, but. You could imagine having a twin planet to Earth where they started off near each other, maybe even circling around each other or something. But the idea that the twin would have the exact same layout and shape of all the continents, <laughs> that's, a, that's a bit of a stretch. It's entirely now, I do. One of the, the you know historical facts I love is that before they understood plate tectonics and all that, you know, literally... 
people, even children, would look at a map of the Earth and say, "Hey, these, you know, these land masses fit together like a puzzle, right?" Right. Um, and then, you know, it took a long time for us to understand that yes, actually, all the land masses did start out sort of solid and then break apart in that puzzle. So uh, it's just amusing sometimes when you know. <laughs> Any five-year-old can can look at the globe and see what's happening, but it takes us a long time to figure it out for real. <laughs> but I don't think that's quite the same as saying, "Oh, another planet showed up. There must be aliens." I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, and it's and it's going to look like the Earth, right? Yeah. So then, uh, General Cutler wants to know what's up, and he points out, as so many people do, that after the Doctor and the crew showed up, everything started getting screwy, right? So <laughs> somehow. Somehow the TARDIS and their crew showing up caused a planet to, to show up and, and all this. <laughs> and he says they need to prove they weren't involved, which I'm just going to point out, I mean, you know, is against the principles, at least in the United States, of our legal system. <laughs> you need to prove they were involved. <laughs> nah. And uh, he then insists that the TARDIS be searched, which is not unreasonable. Yeah. But... Uh, we see some soldiers, you know, they get up out of, they go through sort of the trap door in the snow between the submarine and, and the surface, and they go to the TARDIS. And while they're doing this, we see a, a pretty good miniature set where, um, you know, it's a snowy set in the Arctic, and then this uh, uh, space round spaceship lands. It's You know, mm. I thought it was good looking for, yeah, for Doctor Yeah, not terrible. And uh, at the TARDIS, the sergeant says they need a welding torch to get into it and sends a couple of people back to the submarine to get a torch. Meanwhile, we see three tall, shiny figures with rather odd costumes approach. Mm -hmm. And the sergeant sees them, fires his gun, but one of the figures smacks him in the neck. And that's what we'll learn. You know, this is one of those, you know, classic things. Once you get hit in the neck, you're just you're just down for the count. <laughs> <laughs> And so then the others come back from the submarine with the welding torch. <laughs> They're fooled by the amazing disguise that these, you know, really tall metallic guys put on the cloaks of the uh, 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 of the the soldiers. So they can't, you know, they can't tell they're not humans until they come up. And then what I love is when the Cybermen turn around, they like take down their hats, you know, their their hoodies, so you can see that they're Cybermen before they karate chop the the men so they <laughs> they didn't just you know attack them they first had to show look we're not who you thought we were <laughs> uh, and that's the end of the episode hmm. all right so on the submarine uh the general's trying to contact the zeus for the space capsule that uh, apparently was on its way to mars but now is having technical troubles he reassures the men up there that he's going to get them down safe and sound. Outside, we get a brief view of the uh, Cybermen uh, putting on their uh, jackets, cloaks, whatever they got here. They're going towards the submarine entrance, and we get a poignant little shot of the, uh, the soldiers lying in the snow. They're either dead or about to be frozen solid. <laughs> and then there's a... Uh, Television broadcast by an American-sounding reporter. Uh, we see his face and the and the you know news bulletin that he's giving, and uh, we see a shot of this new planet, and it's clearly just the Earth upside down, and you can very clearly <laughs> see the Australia is there. 
The reporter says that uh, some observers have reported that its land masses resemble those of Earth, but this is being hotly disputed in top <laughs> astronomical circles. And that, uh, you know, in recent years, there seems to be a lot of disputes in scientific circles about a lot of things that might seem uh, indisputable on the surface, but... I also think it's just funny, like, a new planet shows up and we're debating whether it looks like it has Earth-like features. It's like, I'm sorry, let's start with a new planet showed up. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's all kinds of odd disputes going on, but, but the land masses resembling those of Earth is not really in question here, in my opinion. <laughs> so we go to the... Headquarters of the International Space Command. This is the office of Mr. Vigner. And uh, he has an accent. Now, I, I think it was probably German. Certainly the name suggests that he's German. Um, but I couldn't quite place it. So Yeah, I don't know if he's German, but it... it it was pretty clear. It was pretty clear, like that was his actual accent. Like he wasn't, you know, a British person, you know, doing an accent. This is this no. is someone who actually is international, in my my opinion. It could be. It's British or crafty, though. You gotta watch. Well, out and they him. have in the room there, like an actual a, actual African guy in African garb and everything. Where again, they're trying to go all out mm, on the, yeah. you know, and and yeah, I thought that was actually cool. Yeah, United Nations type uh, thing. Yeah. So uh, he's got an assistant or somebody here who's letting him know that they can't get through to the polar base because there's some interference. And this, I, I frequently in our in our talks about Doctor Who, I frequently complain about the padding, and uh, these episodes have a lot of padding. Uh, I mean, even perhaps more than the average Doctor Who episode. Yeah, I wouldn't. If you actually wrote down the plot points that actually happen in the four episodes, there would be like five. I don't know. I mean, like you, know, you could probably handle it in one twenty-four minute episode. Uh, one, yeah. one thing I will say is this is the very first of what we're going to get very familiar with with the next Doctor. It's called Base Under Siege, where you know mm. the TARDIS crew arrives at some base, usually a military or whatever scientific base that is you know, being attacked in this way and then has to deal with that. And it's always, you know, it's a good thing for filming because the base is one set and then you have a couple of other sets and, you know, you can focus on that. But the other thing then is that it re what really matters is the actors and, and the characters that they're doing, whether whether it's a good story or not, because we're going to see the, just that general thing of, oh, some kind of, baddies are attacking this base <laughs> and the yeah. TARDIS crew is helping them out. It's going to gonna be a very common story. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, it can make for a good story, like Zulu, you know, you had Rourke's Drift, but uh, I don't know. I don't need a steady diet of it, but I guess I'm getting it. <laughs> All right. So they've uh, learned that there's interference uh, between uh, the European headquarters of the Space Command and between the submarine. Back on the submarine, uh, the scientist Barclay is saying that if the capsule's power uh, gets too low, it's it's low on power already, partly due to the effects of the, uh, maybe entirely due to the effects of the planet appearing out of nowhere. Well, um, you, know, you know, we have what would normally be gravitational forces, but there's something else going on, right, which we see throughout all this, which is for some reason 
this planet sucks energy out of everything, right? So yeah, yeah. yeah there's a there's some kind of uh, chi energy transfer going on between <laughs> Earth and the other planet, it's, uh, realigning their chakras and all that. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, a scientist says if the capsule's power falls too low, he's going to take over the reentry from here. Uh, because the guys, uh, they have trouble even. This energy drain, it seems to be debilitating them as well. Uh, although that may be, might be partly just the uh, attempt to make it look like they're in zero gravity that you mentioned earlier. But, <laughs> but it seems like part of it is they really seem to be physically drained by all this stuff that's going on. So this doctor's backup plan is he can remotely take over. And the doctor says uh, they must bring them down because they can't last another orbit. So uh, I guess he's seen all the displays and readouts and <laughs> reached that conclusion. Well, and also just because the only way to give the doctor anything to do in this story is to have him occasionally throw out a comment. <laughs> I mean, he, really, <laughs> yeah. he really does absolutely nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really uh, yeah, not not the ideal send-off. <laughs> <Yeah. but laughs> Look, no. I wrote a prediction on a piece of paper. Now let me show you a card trick. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> And now he gets to try and warn the general that those uh, three guys that just entered the base are not what they seem to be. <laughs> I don't know. They have cloaks on. I mean, you know, that seems pretty trustworthy. <laughs> well, he, he seems to have noticed uh, useful details about them that may have given away the fact that they were... <laughs> like them uh, being six uh, feet tall and metal. <laughs> <laughs> so he tells the general it's imperative that he talk to him, but the general just says, get away, old man. But that doesn't go on for long because then the Cybermen reveal themselves and Polly screams and uh, <laughs> everything goes well, to hell. When you say reveal themselves, they take off their hoodies. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> oh, I had no idea there was a six-foot metallic man under that hoodie. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, these uh, these guys don't have normal heads of hair either. They actually have a big square bracket around their head. It's like it's like a, well, they have a spotlight well, up there, right? They have this square bracket like with a spotlight over there. Oh, there might be a light mounted on it. I didn't notice yeah. that part. I, just, I mean, it's not turned on or I anything. I just noticed but, yeah. the the big bracket. It's like you know, Steve Martin used to wear that arrow through the head thing. Right, right. It's like that, but it was a picture frame through the head. And uh, apparently there's a light mounted on the top bar in the picture frame also. But yeah, Which it's they big. actually did just yeah, they actually did just to make them taller, right? <laughs> so if they wanted to put something <laughs> up there. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I I will give them credit for a distinctive uh Doctor Who monster anyway. It's uh you know, may have some design well, quibbles about it, but <laughs> it's certainly well, memorable. And, uh, yeah, I would think one difference between other things we see and even that we'll see in the future is they didn't try to redo the Daleks, right? I mean, they did mm -hmm. a completely different creature. Yeah, yeah. And personality-wise, I mean, uh, uh, they're still awful. I mean, they're basically uh, amoral, but, but they're awful in a different way, whereas the Daleks are real hot-tempered and uh, arrogant. Well, these guys are arrogant, too, but they're not hot-tempered. Um, they're, they're, That's a good uh, point. The Daleks are very emotional, and part of the whole deal here is that these are, you know, computerized people, so they're, they have no emotions. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll learn soon enough that uh, the only f- remaining physical component, or at least the only major remaining physical component, or you know, organic physical component, is is their brains. They mention soon enough that the, their brains are like the humans' brains, but everything Although else actually, is apparently robot. By accident, as we see, there's one other thing. So, the costumer who is very well respected, you know, who, who created their costumes forgot to do gloves for them she was very embarrassed oh. by them. she she just she was busy and she forgot to do gloves so they painted their hands silver they spray painted them but they have human hands which actually turned out to be good because the human hands represented what was left of their humanity right like everything mm. else had been replaced but they had human hands so uh, most people actually feel like that turned out uh, to be a good thing yeah. Makes sense. So hands and brains, I guess. Maybe maybe some miscellaneous other parts that we <laughs> we won't about. speculate on, on which ones. <laughs> <laughs> so when the Cybermen reveal themselves, um, one of the soldiers uh, instinctively rushes to attack, and that doesn't doesn't go well because the Cybermen have these little things. They look they almost look like small theater spotlights. But what they are actually is death rays. Yeah. And they're they're attached to like the the bottom of their stomach. So they sort of have to reach down and disconnect it and then use it. But you know, they're very effective weapons once they, they do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And for once we don't get a lot of fire extinguisher steam and you know, <laughs> stuff coming out. It's just uh they just turn on the light and bang, you're dead. <laughs> so, uh very efficient device apparently. And uh, General Cutler seems to take all this somewhat in stride, and uh, he uh, he's saying, look, I don't know what you're here for, but right now we've got two men in space, and if we don't do something, they're going to die. And the Cybermen talk. It turns out that they have well, the script uh, that, uh, from uh, Chris's transcript site, I should mention. I, I pulled it from there. It mentions them having a sing-song tone, um, and this Cyberman. Now, now, this Cyberman has sort of a monotone, slightly sing-songy, but more it's in the duration of the words, like uh, "I am going to the store." You know, they, 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 <laughs> certain words are just drawn out, and then we'll find in later episodes we'll have some Cybermen who do more sing-songy, like they're actually doing almost melodies. You know, they're just yeah. random notes all over the place. But what what this this tone, uh, this more monotone variation, it reminds me of um, the thermites or thermians. What thermians? I guess they're called in Galaxy Quest. Uh, you know, they they have that way of talking like, and it has saved yep. us. Um, and it, it's very similar. I wonder if it may have even been inspired by the Cybermen. Uh, you know, so. I hadn't thought of that, but you're absolutely right. It is similar, I mean, because that is that musical sing-song thing. The other thing is that, you know, what they do is they'll just open their mouths and then keep the mouth open, and then the the words happen. So, you know, it's supposed to be sort of computer-generated voices, Hmm. and also the actors are not actually saying the words. They actually have, you know, uh, I think one of the guys who did the Daleks is actually doing the their voices uh, on the set so 
Uh, it, it's definitely interesting. I mean, it's the first version of the Cybermen, I think, is really interesting and challenging. Like I say, it's really, they just have a stocking over their head, and then they have some, you know, <laughs> the metal with this spotlight on, on top of that. And uh, they do have some pretty interesting body parts. The stocking part is the hard part to accept these days, right? Now, that will change, obviously. Mm-hmm. They will, you know, they... The the models for these will evolve and and you know be a little less weird than what we see here. Um, but it is pretty weird to just see literally stockings with eye holes cut out, and you can see the human actor's eye under the eye holes. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess that probably is my main objection to the Cyberman costume is the, is that stocking part because otherwise it's not terrible yeah but but yeah. but that that it is a bit off-putting that these guys are supposed to be these advanced cyborgs and they look like they're trying to rob a bank with pantyhose stretched <laughs> over their head it was like a uh, point break right when they had the uh president uh president's uh, uh mass on or whatever <laughs> <laughs> They also do look kind of like, um, just vaguely, distantly, like the, uh, you know, the Michael Myers in Halloween with his William yeah, Shatner yeah. mask that they painted yeah. white. There's, there's a certain creepiness that's similar to that. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, it, it's not all bad, but, but it's very obviously just a piece of tight fabric that's stretched over their neck and head. And it's, uh, yeah, not great. But I, you know, I think, Getting back to that, creating a monster as effective as the Daleks when they're not as effective as the Daleks, but they are. I think there's a lot of compelling things about them, and then, like we say, they will upgrade them, and you know, you know, we'll we'll see what you think in the future. But uh, you know, I still I think that there's some the sing songy stuff and their faces and everything else. There's just some. Yeah, the, I think the there's voices some compelling are things I, about actually. This, you know. I do like the voices. That's that's not yeah. bad. So, uh, so this Cyberman, uh, he says there's no point in trying to save the guys in the capsule. Uh, they could never reach Earth now. <laughs> and he says it in a very, I mean, like he's, it's a very dismissive way, or, or there's something weird about how he says it. Like, oh, don't worry about them. They're never going to get back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really, yeah. it's a matter of sublime indifference to him. I think, yeah. uh, pretty much anything involving, uh, human lives now now at least these guys aren't they're not super keen on killing humans in the at least not in the sense that they they just kill for pleasure yeah that 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 doesn't seem like they do that they just do whatever seems expedient to them so in that regard now with the daleks you get the impression they just really enjoy killing the yeah, the they're going to exterminate. Yeah. yeah, the Daleks are going to exterminate everyone. Um, these guys, and there's actually a point in here I think we're coming up on where they're like, "Oh, okay, if you want to do this, okay." Like they just, you know, they don't want to be ha- be impeded, but they don't really care what the humans do. Where the Daleks want to exterminate everyone. <laughs> yeah, and Polly asks the alien, "Doesn't she care that these guys are in the capsule? We'll just die if we don't do something." And, <laughs> and he replies, "There are people dying all over your world. You don't care about them." Fair good, point. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes on to explain that the new planet our astronomers must have discovered is called Mondas. And he goes on to explain that years ago, Earth and Mondas were twins. Uh, then Mondas just 
drifted away. He says on a journey to the edge of space. So <laughs> it would just just want to do some sightseeing for a while, I guess. I think and, there's a mention here somewhere that Mondas was like an ancient term for Earth, and so I asked mm, yeah, Chat one GPT of the, about this, and Chat GPT said it's not; it's just part of the story. So too bad. Yeah. <laughs> Although uh, the Mundi was Latin for Earth, you know, and there are probably mm. other you know other old okay. languages probably have similar etymological uh, ties. So yeah, well, see, Chat GPT should have told me about that. So. <laughs> Mundi is possessive. It would have been mundus in Latin, which is even closer. So that's yeah. Yeah. It's totally possible that Chat GPT is, you know, in league with the Cybermen. (laughs) Could be. Yep. (laughs) It would be a logical uh, alliance there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And this is where he announces that they are called Cybermen, which uh, is, uh, you know, wouldn't they be? You'd think they'd call themselves Mondians. <laughs> no, they're, they're Cybermen. I guess they're just that proud of their technology. He explains that their bodies were getting weaker, their lives were getting shorter, so they uh, developed all this technology that could replace most of the parts in their bodies. And he says this, their brains are just like the humans, except uh, certain weaknesses have been removed. And he goes on to explain... You call them emotions, do you not? (laughs) There's a thing here, which is, and you know, this is in Star Trek too, like with Spock, right? Like, oh, because he doesn't have emotions, he can make better decisions. And we might have talked about this before, I don't know. But what we have found is, you know, like, so if somebody's, say, in a car accident and the emotional center of their brain is disconnected, they're not able to make good decisions. They're not able to make any decisions because, in fact, what we do is when we're faced with something, it's our feelings, it's our emotions that give weight to what we do. And if you yeah. remove the feelings and emotions, you just paralyze somebody. So, you know, literally someone who's had their emotional center of their brain disconnected they can't leave the house because they can never get around to picking up their keys or or doing anything else, you know? So mm. the reality is you actually need emotions to make decisions. <laughs> yeah, you, you you wouldn't have that incentive or initiative. You just, right. just sit there. And, and I believe that people who suffer from depression experience a similar circumstance to this where they just, you know, lie in bed all day or sit there and stare into space or whatever, you know, just because it's, everything seems so pointless to even attempt to accomplish something. So, yeah, um, you would, you would expect these guys to be uh, a little less, you know, maybe just sit around on their planet and wait for it to (laughs) to die. Blow up. (laughs) Yeah. But somehow, I guess maybe their technology is good enough that they figured out how to overcome that. Maybe maybe they have a little useful emotion generator chip that just, <laughs> just gives them the stuff that keeps them doing things. I don't know. But they say they're without emotions. Oh, and, and you, know, you mentioned Spock. Now, I'm, I'm not a Star Trek expert by any stretch of the imagination. I Be careful. We may end up having to watch that then. <laughs> yeah. Well, after we've gotten through, uh, what, three or, what, four, five decades of Doctor Who? Well, Six decades, <laughs> no. 
Yeah. Oh, so yeah, well, uh, that'll be a while yet yeah, for the Star Trek, I think. <laughs> but uh, but if I remember correctly, I, I I think I read somewhere that Spock was not actually emotionless. He was trained to govern his emotions. If if I remember right. It's maybe a minor distinction, but I think he actually was capable of feeling a more. Right. Uh, well, he was part human too, I believe. Yeah, yeah. That well, um, that's the whole thing. That was considered his flaw, right? Because he was part of emo- human, he had emotions, and that would mess him up, right? Anyway, these guys say they don't have emotions. <laughs> Whatever the truth <laughs> of the matter may be. So, General uh, General Cutler, the hard nosed guy in charge. Uh, he makes a sudden move and he presses a, an alarm button that uh, goes to Europe and uh, signals them that there's an emergency here. And uh, the Cyberman um, mildly scolds him, but <laughs> he says, that was really most unfortunate. You should not have done that. And uh, <laughs> that's about all he does at the moment. Yeah, they really need to learn the exterminate thing. <laughs> <laughs> Back at the Space Command, uh, Mr. Vigner uh, says the Earth is losing its energy, which uh, is, you know, I don't know how they detect that or, you know, <laughs> is, what, maybe in 1986 they have the technology to harness the Earth's energy and use it for stuff. Yeah. But, uh, Unfortunately, after 1986, we lost that technology. So. <laughs> <laughs> And the woman in there with him tells him that uh, she's got an emergency signal, but it was just brief and it turned off. Back on the submarine, the Cyberman gives the order to the general. He says, tell Europe that nothing further has happened and all is well here. Uh, And Cutler gives him a great reply. He says, go take a jump. (laughs) (laughs) Go jump in a lake. Go uh, pee up a rope. Do something. At this point, the general has provoked the Cybermen enough to uh, get paralyzed. It looks like he might be dead at first, but no, he they're just stunned him. So they set him aside. Well, I, you know, there's a visual here we see a couple times where the Cyberman takes his hands and put it around the human's head, and this seems to have a impact on them. Yeah, it's kind of like they're the Cyberman nerve pinch. Yeah. No. Maybe the Vulcans just are based on the Cybermen. That'd be. Well, the funny thing about the nerve pinch is that occurred because Leonard Nimoy, you know, the actor, mm. didn't want to have fights <laughs> with people. So he said, I that, yeah, yeah. So he said, you know what? You know, I have this special thing where I can do this nerve pinch. And then he just knocked people out. <laughs> Yeah, that's a nice, easy thing. That's uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I like. I like his thinking there. <laughs> <laughs> the scientist Barkley, he sees that the Cybermen are threatening their equipment, and he says, "If you destroy that, we can't keep contact with the capsule, and we can't bring them down alive." Which, of course, the Cybermen don't uh, care about. But the this equipment or the threat of its destruction is essentially a hostage now so that they can make these guys contact Europe and tell them that everything's okay. If they want their guys in the capsule, they have any chance at all. So they do that. Uh, finally, one of the guys uh, talks to 
Space Command and lets them know that it was just an accident. No, everything's good here. They're going to try and get in touch with the space capsule again. Uh, the Cyberman uh, says, well, you're not going to have any luck with it, but uh, but go ahead. You know, if you wish to contact them, I have no objection, he says. Meanwhile, uh, Ben notices a rifle is lying on the lying on the ground where the soldier dropped it after being killed by the Cybermen. Now, he wants to make a break for it. The doctor says that's nonsense. He says they'll burn us down in a flash. But Ben picks up the rifle, uh, and the lead Cyberman, at this point, he grabs the rifle, and he bends the barrel of it, which is uh, <laughs> not an easy thing to do for a regular human. So a good demonstration of their cybernetic strength. It also mm. diffuses whatever threat the rifle might have posed, which probably wasn't very much. Uh, you know, they, it seems like you need specialized stuff to really mm-hmm. affect these Cybermen. So they throw Ben in this projection room with a big old movie projector in it. And that will become important very shortly. Back in the space capsule, Zeus 4, they've got to use their uh, rockets again for maneuvering. And the fuel is now gone. They report to the submarine that the fuel's gone. The scientist says, well, there's nothing we can do to help them now that the fuel's gone. Another one of the guys says that they're spinning out. It's not looking good for the guys in the capsule. And then the doctor says to Polly, I'm afraid the spaceship exploded, my dear. Uh, and she replies, <laughs> maybe not the most intelligent question she's ever asked. You mean they're dead? <laughs> yeah, their spaceship exploded. It's uh, pretty much how it ends up. So the Cyberman, now that all this little side comedy is done, he says, now perhaps you can see your planet is in great danger. He says that to save humanity, they'll they'll need information to be transmitted to Mondas, which will turn out to be the planet's very energy itself. Um, and uh, one of the guys says, that means the Earth will die. And the Cyberman says, yes, everything on Earth will stop. Age, please. He's trying to collect the age from this guy. Yeah. Uh, so that it's kind of uh, weird because yeah, like over and over for like a minute or two here, where they're having conversation, he keeps saying, "What's your age? What's your age?" <laughs> it's just like it's really bizarre. <laughs> like it's really important to know what this person's age is. <laughs> well, he's got to collect all his information for uh, immigration demands. <laughs> all the paperwork's got to be in order. And uh, he says at this point, uh, well, the doctor asks how they're all going to survive if everything on Earth is going to stop. And the Cyberman says, by coming with us, age. <laughs> so he still wants to know the age because they're coming along to Mondas. Or that's the plan. Back in the projection room, Ben has this brainstorm, which he speaks aloud for the benefit of the viewers. He looks at this big projector that's in there, and he says, if I was to turn this on the door, it might blind him. Now, I don't know why a submarine would have a projection room on it. It seems like a kind of superfluous luxury to me. Well, actually, this is not inaccurate. Military ships and stuff actually did have projectors to show movies for entertainment. Oh, that's true, sure. Like Um, it came in at the movie night. 
The yeah, submarine so this is, is much more of a premium on space, although you don't really get that impression in this submarine. It seems yeah, but even on submarines, they had that. So it's it's definitely valid. Now, the interesting thing is when he shows the film, as near as I can tell, the film he shows is High Noon. And I've taken it, I might have seen a confirmation of this, but my interpretation is this is a reference to them doing the gunfighters. Mm. And then they show the high noon thing here. Not that there's a direct connection, but it just feels to me like, oh yeah, we a couple episodes ago we had this western, and now we're ah. we're showing high noon. Uh, I did. I looked up because I was trying to remember the name of the film, so I looked up Gary Cooper western films. Oh my god, he did dozens and dozens. I had to oh, yeah. scroll and scroll to find high noon. Huh. And there's a whole thing there. We should watch it sometime because there's a whole controversy there where like. John Wayne really attacked Gary Cooper for being in High Noon because he felt that High Noon was sort of a communist film, hmm. which, you know, I think I would disagree with. But anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, I haven't seen it for a while, but I don't really recall anything communist about it. But yeah, could be. You never know. <laughs> ben is here in the projector room with his great idea. Uh, he yells, Oi, come in here, mate. You're wanted. Um, which made me think there, there's a meme in recent years um, that's sort of making fun of heavy-handed government uh, authority. It's uh, you know, a British police officer saying, Oi, mate, you got a license for that. And then whatever, you got a license for that pencil. You got a license, you know, whatever it is. Um, also, I'm just like... Okay, is there no training? Is there no bad guy on earth who's like, you know, when you're guarding a prison, if the prisoners say, hey, this thing is happening, you should come in. Like, maybe you should be suspicious. I mean, we've seen the, <laughs> this defeat the Daleks and these guys. You know, it's like, yeah. Yeah. So the Cyberman comes in and the blinding light staggers him just long enough for uh, Ben to grab his little spotlight gun. Um, and he tries to move away. He, he he doesn't just instantly go ahead and shoot the guy, which he, he could do now that he has it. But, uh, no, he's trying to keep his distance and just sort of hold him at bay. But the Cyberman isn't giving him that option. He keeps advancing. You know, he's about to give him a good whack with his super cybernetic strength. So Ben shoots him and says, you didn't give me no alternative. <laughs> but he, he says it in a way like he really didn't want to shoot him. I'm kind of yeah. like, look, this is the evil, you know, robot alien invader. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe the doctor's philosophy is rubbing off on him, yeah. you know, because the doctor won't ever kill anybody here. That's what he says. <laughs> he won't ever pull the trigger, which doesn't yeah. mean he won't, you know. <laughs> yeah. Back in another part of the submarine, uh, Polly is telling the Cyberman, uh, you know, regarding his plan to take them all back to Mondas, uh, but we can't live with you. You're different. You've got no feelings. <laughs> and here he says, feelings? I do not understand that word. Now, he, he just knew what emotions were like five minutes ago, but he doesn't know feelings as a synonym for it. So I don't know. But, but it, it gives him another chance to bring it up for anybody who might have been 
check in the refrigerator or something. <laughs> I do find, and she says this a couple different times, right? And I just find it really funny. Like, well, we can't possibly be with you. You have no feelings. It's like, well, uh, you haven't been in many relationships. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even uh, even among humans, uh, some some <laughs> have a lot more feelings visible than others. <laughs> So the Cyberman says, come to Mondas and you'll have no need of emotions. You will become like us. <laughs> Except, of course, that's, he doesn't phrase it that way. It'd be, you will have no need of emotions. Yeah, they, <laughs> I, I do enjoy the way they talk a lot. That's, a, that's definitely a plus. So, so uh, do they talk similarly in future appearances? No, they the drop second? that in the future. I mean, Aww. they always have some kind of robotic voice, but they kind of drop the sing-song thing, yeah. Oh, that's too bad. That was one of the best things about him. Well, anyway, the Cyberman says that we have freedom of disease, protection against heat and cold, <laughs> true mastery. So he thinks it's just a sweet deal all around. And he points out, worst comes to worst, uh, your deaths will not affect us. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, you know, these guys... These guys will save the humans, but uh, they won't really go too far out of their way to do it. Right. They don't care that much. So Ben has gotten out of the projection room, and uh, he passes this uh, light gun over to the general, who apparently can make the best use of it. Polly's still arguing with the Cyberman about the emotions, and she says, Have you no heart? And he says, no, that is one of the weaknesses that we have removed. It's <laughs> <laughs> a pretty good line. Yeah. And then at this point, uh, General Cutler just goes berserk with the light gun and kills all the remaining Cybermen. Uh, so that's all taken care of. Uh, he immediately wants to contact Geneva, or which is where Space Command is. He asks about what Zeus 4 is doing, and uh, the scientist has to tell him that Zeus four was lost. International Space Command uh, replies to Cutler, and they're talking, and uh, he explains everything that's been going on. It's just part man, part robot. They're from this new planet. Three of them broke in. But he says, yes, we can handle them now. Uh, so he's being optimistic. They, they, do, they do now have three of these light guns, which is... That's a good start, but uh, but they don't know how many more Cybermen might be out there. Mm -hmm. So Vigner, the space agency guy, he, he says, uh, we have a special task for you. He goes on to say, we set up a signal, a signal. we set up a single mm -hmm. astronaut to help the other guys down. And guess what? It's your son. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, that, that of all the cheap, plot devices that's got to be uh, I'm, uh, uh, I'm not even going to dwell well, on why I think that's such a crude device here but uh, it is but I will oh, give well, them that he really does like I feel like a lot of his actions we'll see in the next couple episodes are truly motivated by this right like I mean, he really goes off the rails because his son is in danger. And I felt like there was something real to that. I mean, it, it felt mm -hmm. like because of how much they focus on it, it was more than just that traditional, you know, they call it fridging, right? Oh, my girlfriend got killed. Now this movie is about me killing everybody else, right? Yeah. Um, 
And so to some degree, this is that. But I, but I felt like there was some legitimacy in, you know, how far overboard he goes because his well, son yeah, is involved. His, so. his, his reaction to it is fair. But, but the fact that they'd do it in the first place, like, you know, we've got a military that probably has, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in it. And we pick the yeah. one guy who's the son of the guy in charge. <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't know. But yeah, he does. The general does say later that his son is like the one thing he gives a care about. Um, yeah. And that's, that's believable. He doesn't seem like the warmest guy in the world. Anyway, his son's up in, in space now going to the rescue of this other capsule. Uh, Zeus four is a capsule in, uh, in peril and the sons is Zeus five. So we can mm. keep them separate that way. And Vigner, the space command guy, he points out that the, his son's space, Cutler's son's spacecraft has doubled the reserves of Zeus four. So, uh, he'll be a okay. So Cutler starts giving orders about all the guys need to go do this, do that, uh, section three, do this, so forth and so on. And he praises Ben for, uh, for, killing that first Cyberman and thereby obtaining the first light gun. And Ben says, I had no choice. Cutler says, oh, don't apologize. He's dead, isn't he? <laughs> and Polly observes that the general seems to be enjoying all this. And then the, uh, uh, the general retorts that uh, his son is up in the capsule now. He's got a personal stake here. So uh, that doesn't necessarily preclude him from enjoying all this, though. <laughs> Sun notwithstanding. And then the radar operator reports there's a strong signal on the early warning, unidentified. And after a moment, he says, there are hundreds of them, sir. And we actually get a decent effect of the radar screen. You know, it looks, uh, it, it's as a special effect. Oh, it's not really a mm -hmm. complicated special effect. It's probably just some lights on the screen, but uh, but it looks okay. We see a battle fleet of lots and lots of spaceships, and they're getting closer, probably to Earth. They're getting closer to something, anyway. And uh, that's the end of the episode. There are spaceships <laughs> out there. <laughs> so episode three, and General Cutler realizes that if there are hundreds of spaceships Approaching, that must mean they are Cybermen. Seems logical unless entirely uh. coincidentally some entirely other <laughs> alien race <laughs> was attacking at this moment. And he wants to speak to his son ASAP because this will see the only thing he cares about is his son. And meanwhile, the doctor, by which I mean his stand-in, uh, moans and collapses, <laughs> which takes him out of this episode because, as I mentioned up top, he actually was very sick for this episode. So what they did was they just distributed his dialogue to everybody else. <laughs> we'll see yeah. some of that as we go along. Not that he had a, still a whole lot of impact on the story, but yes. So on Zeus 5, you know, which is the, uh, the more recent ship that has the General Sun, the General Sun confirms that he's experiencing some power loss 
And he wants to know what happened to the other astronauts, and his dad doesn't tell him. He just says, well, you're not going to be meeting them now. (laughs) (laughs) We sent him to a nice farm in Michigan. Yeah. (laughs) You you would think his son might have some questions about this, but but he doesn't. (laughs) So after ending the conversation with his son, the general lays out the situation for his staff. And I actually like this because this is a leader sort of saying, here's the deal, right, in a very clear way. And he says, we've got three major problems on our hands. One, my son has been sent up on a foolhardy mission and we got to get him down. Now, that's not necessarily everybody else's problem, but you know, okay, he's clear about it. (laughs) It says, two, another visit from these creatures is almost a certainty. And three, the earth is being drained of its energy by this so-called planet Mondas or whatever it's called. Uh, Again, yeah, I don't know what it means for the Earth to be drained of its energy, but we'll go with it. (laughs) It is kind of funny, the whole idea of everything being drained of its energy, including the Earth, which reminds me of the Savages story we did recently where everyone is being drained of their energy. (laughs) Oh, I got to think back now, the Savages, that was... That was where they were, you know, they were taking, they were, the whole civilization was built on the fact that they were Oh, that's right, yeah, they brought them into the laboratory and sucked all the vitality out of them and then released them to recuperate. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So a guy named Dyson says there's nothing they can do about any of this, but the general disagrees, and he says we can destroy Mondas. (laughs) How? Well, we can use the (laughs) Z-bomb. We don't know what the Z-bomb is yet, but the scientist Barclay immediately responds, you can't do that. (laughs) And the general says, I can and I will. And Dyson says, what about the radiation effects on Earth? And the general says, that's a risk we'll have to take. So what is the Z-bomb? Well, it turns out it's a doomsday weapon. And uh, rightly primed, it could split that planet in half. Um, there are only two or three around the world, and just happens that this Arctic uh, area, they have one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Very handy. Yeah. And if they're, if they're going to use it on another planet, you wouldn't think radiation would be a big concern. Um, now, now, if the planet was really close, maybe the EMP radiation would affect Earth, but then... But then again, we don't know all about the Z-bomb, so maybe it's got some horrible, abominable new kind of radiation. Yeah, I think splitting a planet apart would have some problems and <laughs> create a lot of debris and, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. Well, look at Saturn with the, uh, you know, oh, the, the rings ring. and all that. Yeah. That's probably what happened on Saturn. Is it? Maybe this story happened on Saturn. <laughs> yeah, they used the Z-bomb on it. Mm-hmm. So the general can't use the Z-bomb without approval from higher-ups. And now we get into this very interesting political thing. So he calls the guy uh, we mentioned earlier, I think of him as the, um, so what would essentially be today the European Union, you know, he has to get approval. So he calls the guy we've seen earlier and says, can I use the Z-bomb? And the guy is, you absolutely cannot use the Z-bomb. That would be way too dangerous for Earth. <laughs> this is really funny, and it's probably realistic. He says, well, okay, but can I do whatever I need to do to defeat the Cybermen? <laughs> and the guy's like, oh, of course, you can do whatever you need to do. <laughs> so then... After they hang up, the general's like, okay, we're going to use the Z-bomb. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Winks is good as a nod to a blind man. Yeah. 
And Ben's like, wait, you were just told you couldn't. He's like, well, I was told I could do whatever I need to. (laughs) Yeah. So Ben and Polly try to talk the general out of using the Z-bomb. And in one of the lines that was supposed to be the doctor's that was given to Ben, you know, Ben says, look, the doctor said it's not only Earth that's in danger, but that Mondatz itself is in far greater danger. Otherwise, why would they have bothered coming here? He said eventually it would absorb too much energy and burn itself out and then shrivel up to nothing. So all we've got to do is wait. <laughs> I just thought it was very amusing that, you know, he's just delivering the doctor's lines for him that some for some reason the doctor told him last episode. Yeah, I was thinking I didn't remember the doctor saying that. So this, I guess it's <laughs> yeah. probably because he didn't say that. <laughs> yeah. But the general refused to accept that blowing up Mondas might have any negative effect on the earth. And he then orders Ben to be confined with the doctor. And Ben tells Polly to try and get the scientist Barclay on their side. <laughs> and in, I don't know, kind of a blow against feminism, Polly tells the general she should be allowed to stick around. You know, she shouldn't be put away because she can make coffee for everyone. <laughs> Somebody's going to make the coffee. Yeah. And this is going to come up again in a future story. So we'll see what we think about that. Uh And then the scientist Barclay tells the general that he has to be present for Dyson to deal with the Z-bomb. So he has to go there and deal with it because they can't just do the Z-bomb stuff on their own. They need the general, I guess, giving them permission. Yeah. And then we go to the bomb assembly room, and everyone is in protective masks and clothing. And the general is just like, this little baby is going to solve all our problems. So he's very (laughs) sophisticated here. Dyson is concerned about the radiation, but, you know, the general's not having any of it. And he says, look, I'm scared for that son of mine. That's why we've got to get this thing away. Otherwise, we'll never get him down. You know, time's short. Let's get moving. So... I mean, it's pretty clear the only thing he cares about is son. He doesn't really care about what happens to the rest of the earth. (laughs) Yeah. And in a way, I think that that makes it a more interesting motivation. Like, this is someone who's really, you know, monomaniacal on that. Yeah, yeah. From a character motivation point of view, it certainly uh, gives him some added incentive to (laughs) use the most desperate measures. Yep. (laughs) So back in the tracking room, Polly is talking to the scientist Barclay, and she says, are you trying to get in touch with the general's son? <laughs> the scientist who's supposed to be the nicer, more enlightened guy. He says, look, you just keep your mind on making coffee, will you? <laughs> <laughs> and then, to his credit, he apologizes and said that that was rude. And Polly then asks, can't we wait and fight off the Cybermen until Mondas is destroyed since, you know, Mondas seems to be in trouble. And she says it would probably be the end of Cutler's son, the general. But that's one life against millions. And Barclay says, well, what can I do? If I don't follow the general's orders, he's going to carry on his own without me. You know, he's a very ruthless man. (laughs) Polly says, can't we pretend to follow his orders, but in fact make sure the rocket doesn't go off? So she's basically... Asking Barclay to, you know, become a traitor, you know, which would probably have like the death penalty. 
Yeah, although you know, if you if you have the potential to save a couple billion lives, uh, you know, maybe at some point you have to say it could be a worthwhile sacrifice. (laughs) Now the general then enters the room, and they haven't been able to reach his son. The Cybermen spaceships are on the way. And the general says, let's let them land and we'll ambush them with their own weapons. So, you know, the, uh, they've uh, taken the spotlight weapons from the Cybermen that they captured previously. Yeah, I think they have three of them, yeah. uh, which is not a lot against the, a fleet of what they've said is hundreds of spaceships. But, uh, <laughs> ah, that's a start. Yeah. <laughs> So then Barclay goes with Polly to where Ben is being held, and they all decide that Ben should go to the rocket silo and disable the rocket, and Barclay tells him what he... This is actually very like Star Wars, right? Here's the little thing you can change that no one will detect that will defeat the rocket when it goes out. And Barclay says he'll distract the scientists that would otherwise be in the room. Meanwhile, outside, we see another cyber saucer landing. <laughs> and then, but as we referenced earlier, nearby guards are hiding in a snowdrift, you know, with those uh, Cybermen weapons. And they shoot the Cybermen and take most of them out. In the tracking room, the general has seen the Cybermen get shot. And he's like, well, that's accounted for that lot. You know, tell them to bring the captured weapons down here. So he's very happy. But then he discovers that Barclay has been distracting the scientists in the corridor so that Ben could go into the missile silo and, you know, sabotage the missile. And the general enters the rocket silo room and Ben is sort of halfway inside the mechanism and the general pulls him back and causes him to fall backwards over a railing, which is actually a pretty good stunt. I assume they had a stunt yeah. man using axes. Yeah, it looks, uh, it, it, it looks dangerous, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty brutal. And, you know, Barclay's like, I can explain this, General, and the General's not having of any of it. He's like, yeah, I'm sure, you know, come with me. I need you. We'll talk about this after the rocket is gone. In the tracking room... The general says, now, listen, I'm warning you, if that rocket doesn't take off for Mondas, if my son's life is in jeopardy, I'll take the law into my own hands. So he's, at this point, he's just like, I'm going to do whatever the hell I'm going to do. And he says, that goes for you too, Dr. Barclay. You'd just better make a good job of that launch. And then he tells him to start the countdown. And talking to his son, the general says, have you seen any sign of these, you know, alien spacecraft? And his son says, no, I haven't seen a thing. There's just me up here. And he's like, oh, when are you going to bring me down? And his father's like, well, we can't quite do it yet. (laughs) He's just not going (laughs) to give him all the information. Meanwhile, Polly kind of gets Ben to recover from his fall over the railing. And they're doing a countdown. We have the classic Doctor Who countdown. But they start to see a problem on the computer, and this comes from Ben sabotaging the rocket earlier. But we see the rocket rising out of the snow from the submarine below, which, again, I think looks pretty good. Not bad. Yeah, I think the pace, like it wasn't a steady raising, it sort of slowed down a little because somebody was hand-moving it, I think. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, yeah, not bad overall. Yeah. 
And then we get a really weird thing in Doctor Who, which is in the control room, as we get shots of the different people, we see uh, the numerical overlay of the countdown. So, you know, nine, eight, seven, six, and we're seeing that over them, which is, you know, not something we usually see in Doctor Who. And it's the end of the episode. (laughs) Which brings us to episode four. Uh, which is the conclusion not only of the Tenth Planet story arc, but of William Hartnell's tenure as Doctor yeah. Who. So let's see if they give him a fair, decent send-off. And this episode is an animation, unfortunately. Hartnell's last appearance uh, is not, at least not currently known to be on video anywhere. Now, I, I was mm. reading about how they recover some of these, and... uh yeah, you know, there's places all over the world that these mm-hmm. videos have turned up from places where the BBC sent episodes and they still had had them decades later or years later. So there's always the hope that maybe one of these episodes will still turn up. And of course, if nothing else, we could just invent a faster than light drive and send a probe <laughs> out to a place in space where the signals haven't reached yet. Get it that way. Lots of options there. But this animation is good overall. I like the animation yeah. style. I'm pretty sure we've seen it before in one, at least one of the animations we've watched in the past. But they do the same thing they did in another animation where um, the characters don't... They look somewhat like the real people, but if they, whoever designed the caricatures didn't really have him dead on you know Hartnell <laughs> looks kind of distorted and elfin and uh yeah the general he doesn't really the animated version of him doesn't doesn't have that as craggy a face as the live action general does you just little changes you can pretty much tell who everybody's supposed to be but uh yeah the animation just just the existence of the animation makes it easier to watch than your average reproduction or reconstruction. Yeah, I'm so glad they that. did that. I think you might be referencing in terms of earlier animation, The Reign of Terror, uh, where they had might, kind of might very, have been. very realistic faces and stuff. Now, the difference is in The Reign of Terror, there's this weird thing like where the character's eyes would move in a very weird way and stuff, and they don't have any of that here. It's it's. I feel like it's a little more smooth and... Um, yeah. yeah, it's oh no, it's it's pretty good animation. It's just the the actual physical resemblances of the faces aren't always as dead on yeah. as I would have liked. Cutler, uh, General Cutler, he he is now very suspicious of the intentions of Polly and Ben and the rest of them, and he says, uh, "Your Cybermen friends may have a chance <laughs> of life, but not you, Sailor, because." Uh, Oh, I guess in the past episode, we didn't actually, we left with the cliffhanger, so I didn't put it in the notes that uh, in this episode, we find out definitively that the rocket was a dud, that uh, Ben did succeed mm-hmm. in sabotaging right. it before he got taken down. Cutler's upset with everybody involved, and uh, he orders the old man to be brought up here, and uh, Polly says, but he's ill. Cutler <laughs> says, he's going to get worse. <laughs> so he may have something bad in mind here. So the doctor comes back, and uh, Polly asks what happened to him, and uh, 
He's not certain, but uh, but he goes on to make a cryptic remark. Unless this old body of mine is wearing a bit thin, mm-hmm. Polly asks what he means, and he says, "Oh, don't worry, child." He <laughs> brushes her off, mm-hmm. and I guess uh, no, no. Hartnell didn't live too much longer after this, did he? I yeah, mean, he only no, lived a few more years. Five, after. ten years, but he 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 had arterial sclerosis that had not been identified at this point but mm. which probably had a lot to do with him forgetting lines and, and that sort of thing uh. and also and you know the actors who played Ben and Polly were really didn't get along with him and, and in addition to just him being conservative and they were not uh, I think part of it may have been he was just grumpy because he had this disease and mm. you know also, many people said, I mean, a lot of the thing with him was he would usually have, you know, the majority of lines in an episode. So he was just trying to remember the lines and he didn't oh, want sure. people distracting him and he would get irritated if someone tried to have a conversation with him or something. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Well, that's, uh, I guess he didn't have to memorize any more lines after uh, <laughs> after this episode. I don't know. Did he ever do any acting after this? Do you know? Oh, he did. In fact, probably at the end of this, I will include a uh, interview with him where he was in a pantomime. Right. So in England, there's this tradition of these things called pantomimes during like the Christmas holidays, where they'll kind of have silly stories on stage and stuff. And he was uh, doing that. Um, so he and he was on a couple of TV shows and stuff after this, but. But for not too long, um, because no. you know, he was really kind of declining. Hmm. On board the submarine here, General Cutler is telling the scientist Barkley uh, that uh, you screwed up and now you're going to make amends, basically. <laughs> Barkley seems to think that the rocket can't be fixed in any kind of decent time frame. Cutler says, how long will it take you to refuel? And Barkley replies, long enough. So mm-hmm. it looks like they, they may have eliminated the Z-bomb as a strategic option. The general's son reports from his Zeus V capsule that he's tumbling badly and there's little control left in the capsule. He also reports that this new planet, Mondas, it's acting real weird. It, it seems to get brighter and then darker and brighter and darker. The doctor comments that... It, the planet can't absorb much more energy. <laughs> also say one of the problems of them naming it the Z-bomb is there's you can't make another bomb after that. I mean, you've reached the end of the alphabet. <laughs> well, then you do what Excel does and you make the double A-bomb. Yeah. <laughs> so they lose signal to the Zeus 5 and the general is worried he orders the men to get the signal back as if that's something you can do just by turning a <laughs> dial or something um oh, it's sort of like the old oh zoom in on the image you know okay yeah. whatever <laughs> Enhance. Yeah. <laughs> so uh the the general is is upset he's he's convinced that uh this guy's ineptitude has uh has killed his son even though they don't know what kind of state the zeus five is in at the moment but the general says something revealing here. He says, the only person I gave a care about in this whole world, and you killed him. 
So now I'm going to kill you, and I'll start on you, doctor, which he <laughs> says to the doctor, of and course. This is very dramatic because he has like a pistol to his head. I mean, he is really yeah. kind of gone crazy at this point. Yeah, he's uh, he's definitely crossed the line here. This, however, is the point where uh, I guess you would call it a deus ex machina <laughs> because they are actually machines. The Cybermen come in, Polly screams. Cutler, he tries shooting them, but, uh, you know, the Cybermen are pretty speedy with their cybernetics and all. So Cutler dies, and that's the end of the poor general who <laughs> all they wanted to save us soon. So the thing about these base under siege stories is, especially since they get repetitive over time, the only thing that matters I mentioned is the quality of the actors and the characters. And I don't know, I'm going to, I'm not going to say he's the best. I think we're going to see better, but I think that he was at least interesting, uh, the general and, you know, the degree to which he was focused on his son and that that led him to do things that he shouldn't have and, you know, put a gun to the doctor's head and all that, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, and I, I, I liked the actor quite a bit. Actually, I thought he did uh, did a good job. You know, I don't uh, don't like everything about just the the general story and the way it's constructed and so forth. But I mean, uh, as far as the performance, uh, Cutler, I thought did a fine job. Mm-hmm. So Ben, the the Cybermen don't seem to realize yet that uh, that this series of actions is actually saved the planet Manda, so or at least saved it from the Z-bomb. Right. And he says, there's gratitude for you. <laughs> and the Cyberman in charge replies, save Mondas. We do not believe you. We've seen a rocket missile aimed at Mondas. The doctor points out that, uh, that the people in the room are the people who stopped that missile from watching. The doctor says, your plan is going to disintegrate. Why not stay and live with us in peace? Uh, and the Cybermen are willing to entertain the proposition, or at least seemingly willing. But it uh, could be a subterfuge, and we'll find out the doctor suspects exactly that. But the Cybermen are going to take some time and uh, think about it, but they say they cannot talk while that missile's aimed at Mondas. It must be disarmed first. So the doctor's okay with this. He he speaks in private to Ben. Uh, he says this will give us the time we need uh, for the planet to burn itself out. Uh, the doctor accepts the Cybermen's terms. And just to make sure there's no hanky-panky, the Cybermen are going to take some hostages. One is Polly, who will go to the Cybermen's spaceship. Uh, and the doctor will stay here. And the doctor asks the Cyberman for his word that Polly will be returned once the bomb is defused. And the Cyberman says yes. So <laughs> that uh, at least at least if his word is worth anything, uh, she's in good hands. Yeah, we don't really know at this point. I mean, the Daleks, you know, you wouldn't be able to trust them. In oh, Antwerp, yeah. But these guys may be. Maybe, yeah. yeah. Maybe, yeah. So on the Cyberman spaceship, they've got Polly being brought to this little uh, sort of a makeshift uh, jail cell type thing, I guess you'd call it. It's a room where the jail cells are actually benches with bars on them, like uh, when you get on an amusement park ride and they swing the metal bars in place (laughs) to keep you 
securely tucked in there. Uh, so it's it's basically a bench, just a narrow little bench uh, that she can sit on. That, that doesn't look like such an uncomfortable bench to me. Uh, yeah, it's a little. It's got a right angle along the front edge, which uh, yeah could be curved a little to make it more comfortable. But it doesn't look all that bad. But she isn't happy about it at all, and she struggles until the Cyberman does his Vulcan nerve pinch thing, and that's enough to get her into the. Get her into the chair good and proper. So now back at the uh, submarine, uh, Secretary Vigner from the uh, from Geneva, he's calling to speak with the general. The doctor takes the call because the general isn't here, and uh, he's been put in charge temporarily, as he puts it. Uh, and then we see that back at Geneva, Vigner's office is now full of cybermen. <laughs> And there's one who, according to the script, uh, is named Gurn, which is interesting because that was Steve Martin's name, Gurn Blanston. Hmm. Uh, at least that's what he claimed in one of his comments. But it, Gurn says, I am now controller of the earth. Resist us and you <laughs> die. And I can only say that because that's in the script notes in the actual show. What he said was indecipherable to me. It was just too... <laughs> Too garbled, too, you know, too much Cyberman voice in it. So, Gurn tells the Cybermen on site on the submarine they should report to him as soon as uh, they're ready because we need time to evacuate. <laughs> and the doctor has questions about that. He asks one of the Cybermen in the submarine, evacuate? Surely you're not going to return to Mondas now. Cyberman replies that he's not going to discuss their plans with him. <laughs> the doctor says, what is your second objective? It's quite obvious, isn't it? The destruction of the Earth. <laughs> uh, so there's a yeah, reasonable enough guess. I don't know if the, it's 100% certain, but uh, yeah, it's a good guess. Mm. So meanwhile, Ben and three other guys, they're all in hazmat suits, you know, the radiation suits, and they're, they're in the room where the bomb is uh, sitting, waiting to be repaired and taken offline. Ben has an idea. He says, the doctor told us to play for time, right? And what he's observed is that there are only humans in this room with the bomb. The Cybermen have stayed outside, leaving all the humans to do whatever they want in the, in the bomb room. Yeah, it was kind of a callback to the Doctor Who movie, right, where the Daleks didn't want to do the dirty work because of the radiation. Hmm. I don't remember that, but I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to watch it again, we can do that. <laughs> oh, terrific. Yeah, well, I'll make a note for uh, uh, sometime in tw 2050 or thereabouts, I think, support for me. So they quickly figure out that maybe these guys are afraid of radioactivity. So what, once again, Ben does the old, come in here, mate, there's something up. <laughs> <laughs> and, and once again, it works. Uh, but yep. as soon as he enters, um, he gets all woozy. He sort of staggers around. So then uh, Ben takes the opportunity to steal his little spotlight again. Uh, but then just pushes the Cyberman back out the door and closes <laughs> it. One of the other guys asks, why did you do that? We could have escaped. 
but Ben points out that uh, there's not really much point in escaping right now. Uh, where they are is the most useful place to be. Mm-hmm. So they've just got to sit tight and wait, he says, until Mondas breaks up, like the doctor said. But he does realize that they've still got the doctor and Polly, so they're not entirely without leverage. In the bomb room, the robot, the chief chief cyberman down here, he says, we cannot allow Mondas to burn up. If you help, we'll take you all back to Mondas with us. Hmm. Ben's not having any of it. Uh, he, he says he he's not even trying to surprise them now. He just says we're going to sit tight here until Mondas breaks up. But then he says something, you'd better release the doctor and Polly and send them down here. You're going to need our help when Mondas is gone. So I don't know, it seems, at this point, it seems like kind of an idle threat. But, uh, oh well, he gives it a try anyway. The Cyberman says Mondas will not burn up. And he gives an order to take the old man, meaning the doctor, out to the spacecraft. And now the Cyberman gives Ben an ultimatum. You've got three minutes to start fusing the warhead. And at the end of that three minutes, if, if they failed, the Doctor and Polly are both done for. So Ben disconnects the intercom in the uh, bomb room that they're in, which means that the Cybermen can't spy on them anymore. It also means they can't communicate with the Cybermen. But Ben's mm-hmm. got a plan, and we get one of those scenes where he says, now this is what I think we should do. Hmm. This also goes back to the Daleks, right? The that first Dalek story where they were watching the crew over a camera, and then you know the crew disabled the camera, or, and all that. Oh yeah, that was when they were they were trying to use the mud for the yeah yeah. So meanwhile, on the Cybermen spaceship, Polly and the Doctor are both in these little cage chairs now, which are. They don't look like they would be by themselves particularly effective. It looks like you could just probably wriggle out through the bars or crawl over them or you know, something. But uh, but what the heck, we'll suspend our disbelief for now. They're talking with each other, and they, the spacecraft is vibrating. But the doctor doesn't think it's his ship engines firing up. Rather, he thinks that this is vibrations from Mondas, which is absorbing all the energy lately. He points out that this spacecraft receives its memory, or receives memory, geez, its energy from Mondas. It may be getting overloaded, which uh, we have to hope not, because if the spaceship blows up with the Doctor and Polly inside, then they're in trouble. Mm-hmm. Back in the bomb room, Ben is wondering if there's something that's radioactive and portable. And they go back and forth. Initially, one of the scientists just says, nope, we're out of luck. But after Ben starts talking about it and thinking about it, they realize there's a reactor in here that if they pull out the rods, they can you know, they can use those. They'd be they'd be just just radioactive enough to affect the Cybermen, hopefully. Mm-hmm. So they take the rods out of the reactor. They put together a little uh, little plan. Uh, the lights are going to fade because. The reactor shut down now, and it was providing all the power. And the Cyberman, the chief Cyberman, says, your three minutes is up. What's your decision? And he says, come out and give us the bomb. Ben says, come in and get it. But the Cybermen are prepared for this uh, because they have some handy gas. 
and they can start mm. pumping it into the room uh, yep. through the, it uh, looks like through a crack in the door or something like that. It's not clear exactly where the pumping is coming from, but but the room is filling up with gas. So the guys get out of the room and they uh, they shoot up the Cybermen with their cyber weapons. Mm-hmm. The Cybermen outside the door, they're waiting for the gas to do its work, but uh, they've already got a couple of humans stationed out in the hallway just waiting for the next batch of Cybermen to show up. So it's mostly a successful ambush. I think maybe one of the humans went down, um, mm-hmm. but it was mostly successful. Then he's talking with the, uh, Ben, that is, he's talking with the scientists, and they find one of their little Cyberman communicator units, and they think that if they fiddle with it enough, they can summon more Cybermen here. <laughs> and they fiddle with it, and it does end up working somehow they figured out the right buttons to push and that was that was an alarm signal for the cybermen and uh the cybermen come in and uh, this is the part where they have to deal with the consequences of summoning them in but uh fortunately just at this very moment is when the planet mondas really starts to fall apart we see some animated lava flows and then we see the planet cracking up and sort of falling apart into just little, uh, well, big big chunks. It's like sort of, <laughs> I don't know. They're, they're just sort of floating there. It's instead of one one planet, it's, you know, ten planet pieces it, of planet. It's a little bit like, you remember in the arc when there was the monitor where we saw the Earth dying and it had the smoke trail or whatever. I mean, some similarity mm. there. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's animated decently. I mean, it's... Uh, it's. Well, in fact, I'm sure the animation is showing more than we saw in live action because in the animation we see, like, the lava and all that, which we probably oh, yeah. have seen in live action. Yeah, it probably would have been something more like just setting off a smoke bomb behind it. <laughs> but uh, well, one thing I noticed about the animation is the planet comes apart surprisingly fast. I mean, and the... On the scale you're talking about there, these gaps between the pieces of the planet would be like hundreds of miles <laughs> wide. But also in reality, now you have to worry about those pieces colliding with Earth or becoming whatever, and maybe it becomes a ring system like Saturn. Yeah. But like, you know, uh, <laughs> there's going to be some big consequences from Mondas breaking up, and I'm sure that future Doctor Who will fully embrace <laughs> the impact of that. Uh, so we just have to wait and see uh, and yeah. see how that uh, affects everything down the road. <laughs> Unless, uh, I mean, I suppose there's an outside chance they could just never address the issue ever That's again. That's a possibility, but that would be a spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I know which, which uh, outcome I'm suspecting here. <laughs> anyway, the planet is falling apart, and... Fortunately for everybody, particularly the people who were in the room with angry Cybermen, it turns out the Cybermen drew all their energy and coherence from the planet Mondas. So when it disintegrates, they disintegrate. (laughs) They just start falling down to the floor, left and right. And uh, it turns out that was was all that was needed to defeat the Cybermen, (laughs) blow up their planet, and uh, they go with it. And we'll never see them again. <laughs> <laughs> so at this point, uh, the general's son 
comes back on uh, the radio and uh, he's contacting the base. Uh, he's doing fine. Nobody bothers to mention that uh, his dad is dead. Uh, he'll find that out soon enough, though, I guess. Mm-hmm. Back in Geneva, the Secretary of Vigner says the Cyberman menace has ended all over the world. <laughs> it's a very, very, very thorough way of killing off the Cybermen, I guess. Mm-hmm. So Ben gets out of the Cyberman saucer and he rescues Polly and the doctor, get him out of the cages. The doctor is actually sleeping. They have to wake him up. Mm -hmm. Ben says, it's all over now, and the doctor's groggy, half asleep. He says, what did you say, my boy? It's all over. It's all over. That's what you said. No, but it isn't all over. It's far from being all over. Mm -hmm. Uh, So one of the more cryptic things the (laughs) doctor has said, but he must get back to the TARDIS immediately. So they're all going to do that now. They're not even going to say goodbye to the people at the submarine or anything. They just must go at once. Back of the TARDIS, uh, Polly and Ben are locked out. Uh, They protest that uh, the doctor can't leave them here in all this snow Mm. and stuff. Inside, we see that the TARDIS console, the doctor's standing at it, and it's acting strangely. All the levers are moving up and down of their own accord. That big Mm -hmm. plastic cylinder in the middle is bobbing up and down. It's kind of freaking out. Then we see that uh, Polly and Ben Ben have somehow made it into the ship. Now, in the script notes, it says that the doctor opened the door for them, but that wasn't clear in the animation. Mm -hmm. Because one minute he's standing at the console, the next Polly and Ben are there, and he's lying down Mm -hmm. on the ground on the floor Mm -hmm. next to the console. He looks very uh, motionless. We hear that uh, TARDIS dematerializing sound start up again, that ratcheting, whining noise. (laughs) And as it does so, we see the doctor's face kind of bathed in this halo of light, and the halo grows brighter for a moment, and then it fades. But as it fades, we see that his face has changed. His eyebrows are dark now. We can't really make out a whole lot of stuff about the face, but it's clearly not the William Hartnell that we know and love. Uh, (laughs) And that's because apparently it is now Patrick Troughton. Or Troughton. Troughton. (laughs) And that's the end of the episode. And we have a new doctor. So uh, Godspeed, William Hartnell, wherever you are. You were an entertaining actor. (laughs) And, yeah, he... He is my favorite doctor. As you've said, you're all set not to like any other doctors, but let's see if Patrick Troughton can can win you over. Um, although, well, we're going to, when we get there, we are we have a couple things to watch first. When we get there, we're going to watch like a an old TV show that he was in just so we can kind of see what it's about and then, you know, get into him as the doctor. But then it's going to be mostly animation for a long time. Oh, so. uh, yeah. Yeah. But, well, I hope uh, he has a good voice, at least. Yeah. <laughs> so, ale- you know, it's a little hard because everybody makes up their own stories here. But allegedly, Hartnell said he recommended Troughton, you know, and Troughton hmm. was, Patrick Troughton was a very well-respected actor. So he was kind of honored to be replaced by him. But let's get to this. I mean, so we have multiple things here. You know, well, ultimately, from what you've seen here and knowing 
that they're going to come back. What's your feeling about the Cybermen compared to the many other monsters that we've uh, encountered? <laughs> uh, they're actually costuming notwithstanding. Uh, you know, I, I, they're not bad. I, I, I like the voices, and you say we won't get that's quite the same <laughs> voice treatment in the future. Mm. But yeah, overall, uh, uh, they're okay. I wouldn't mind seeing how, how their next incarnation uh, stacks up. I'd give them another shot. I, I think uh, um, I think I might actually find them more interesting than the Daleks. Actually, the mm. Daleks just don't really uh, don't bowl me over. You know, they're 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 <laughs> fine, but <laughs> like uh, so far, the Cybermen might be slightly more interesting than the Daleks to me. We'll mm. see. So, how about our companions? Are they growing on you? You know, what's just been a couple episodes uh, with them, but we had uh, the. We had war machines, the and then the smugglers, and then this. I don't resent them the way I resented Vicky for a <laughs> while. That, that that probably was mostly just because of losing Susan, who I'd grown yeah. fond of. Yeah, I'm to take him or leave him at this point. I think. <laughs> Uh, Ben's, well, ben, ben seems a little plucky. Actually, Polly does too. Yeah, so yeah. pluck. There's something to be said for pluck, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Well, there's going to be some interesting things in the next uh, couple stories. So, as I mentioned in a base under siege story, you know, it's all about the characters. So basically, the only real characters that aren't part of the crew that stand out are the general and maybe the scientist Barkley. Um, mm. So what do you think about these? And the Italian guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he, he doesn't get many lines, though. But yeah, most most of the characters uh, of the submarine are uh, pretty interchangeable. You know, they're there to say a line or two and then get out of the way. Um, the general, I thought, did an excellent job. Um, yeah. Yeah, I had no problem with him. Yeah, it's uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the guys were... They did, did not distinguish themselves greatly, you know, over the other guys, <laughs> but uh, not bad. It was fine. <laughs> that seems to be my my attitude towards most of this. Aside from the, the you know, even not being an advanced scientist, uh, I some some of the stuff in these episodes just uh, did not ring very true to me. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine why. Well, so we get to the key question. You know, is this worth watching for a modern audience? You know, Hartnell's last story, mm -hmm. uh, does that overcome any any questions about the, the story itself? Uh, you know, I would, I would give this, <laughs> I, would, I definitely, I definitely wouldn't, wouldn't like say, you got to see this right now or sit down and watch this. <laughs> Is it honestly overall? I mean, there, there are parts of it that are entertaining. There are parts of it that I'll probably remember for some time to come. But uh, as as a whole, yeah, I'd, I'd say you could give it a miss, and your life wouldn't <laughs> be diminished all that much. Yeah. So, in terms of Doctor Who history, with the introduction of Cybermen, I think it's definitely worth watching for that. No matter what you think about them, you can then contrast their portrayal here to their future 
portrayals, uh, yeah. being one of the rare monsters that keep coming back. I do like, you know, the general as an actor. Um, as I mentioned, I feel like it's almost not a Doctor Who story and that Doctor Who had very little to do with the story. And mm. yeah, he was gone during episode three where he would have said a few things, but he was just saying things from the sidelines. I mean, he was really right. not part of the story at all, which is a little weird for a Doctor Who story. It's yeah, not like, well, he, you he, know, he wasn't uh, curing a disease or you know, anything like that. Oh, yeah. He he figured out the solution early on, which was, uh, well, we just got to wait. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, and also, oh, yeah, aliens are coming. And, you know, but, but yeah, he didn't do anything. Nothing he did had anything to do with the resolution of the story, right? Yeah, um, although that was, it was resolved by doing just what he uh prescribed which was you know we got to buy time until the planet blows up of its own accord yeah <laughs> i guess that was the best but even stuff like sabotaging the rock the rocket that came from another person you know barclay and and mm -hmm. all that so uh now i i think a really unfortunate thing here is that because the last episode is the one that's missing you know we don't see the live action regeneration. As I said, if you watch the background material, you can see it. It is there. And honestly, I think a weakness in the animation, I think they were trying to be too faithful to the live action, which actually meant you couldn't really tell in the animation what had changed. Like you couldn't really see a new face. With yeah, Patrick it wasn't, it wasn't shocking. I, I think, you know, yeah. like, well, I mentioned the color of the eyebrows because I think yeah. they drew Hartnell with white eyebrows. But that's really, I mean, there's not a lot that really would just, you know, make your jaw drop and, and say, oh, yeah. gosh, that's a different guy. If you weren't paying attention, you could have missed it. To totally. I, I could have totally missed it. And with animation, you have the opportunity to sort of ex exaggerate it, right, so you can tell that there's someone different there. So I think they kind of messed that up. Yeah. I did like a couple of Hartnell's last lines, especially him saying this old body, you know, I mean, that's pretty <laughs> nice. And we actually, if you watch the background documentary, there's actually the live action scene of him saying that. Hmm. So I like that. So I, I think this is a worthwhile story historically for Doctor Who. Hmm. It might not be on its own terms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would yeah. think certainly if you're if you're going into watching Doctor Who with the intent of becoming a big a big fan, you know, maybe even a little history buff type, you know, expert, you know, like you. <laughs> but then, uh, then certainly this would be a, a must watch. Uh, in that regard, at the very least, the fourth episode of it. Yeah. yeah. But if you're just looking for a good time, uh, I'd say you could have better times elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's our conclusion on this. Now, next up, I mean, we're going to, before we get to Patrick Trouton, we're going to do a couple of things. And the next one is, and I'm really, really uh, shocked when I was looking up to realize 10 years ago this came out on the 50th hmm. anniversary of Doctor Who. So on the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who, they did a docudrama called An Adventure in Space and Time. 
And the fact that this was 10 years ago really bothers me <laughs> because it's huh. like, it, to me, it's like, oh, that was like two years ago. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> it just shows you how old I'm getting. But anyway, this is basically a docudrama about the three episodes we've just watched. So, you know, hmm. we'll see uh, what you think of that. Um, uh, the three episodes or four episodes? Three seasons, I'm sorry. Oh, the three Fresh seasons. Episodes, okay. Three seasons. Yeah, not three episodes. <laughs> three seasons. <laughs> so basically, you know, it's a it's a oh. telling of how the series came about and all that. Okay, it's, not, just the, it's about the whole Hartnell career yeah. there. And it's not okay. entirely accurate, but it's pretty good. I think. Hmm. Well, you'll have to decide for yourself. Uh, then okay. we're going to watch one more Hartnell movie. You know, we've ended each of these seasons with a movie that Hartnell was in. Now, the yeah. difference is previously we have had comedies that Hartnell was in. And this time it's going to be a serious film that is very well respected. So we'll see mm. what we think of that. You know, I wanted to give him his due uh, on the way out. And then we'll get into Patrick Troughton. And and, we're, and again, we're not going to jump into the first Doctor Who story. We're actually going to watch an old uh, British TV Because he, he was in many, many British television shows before he was in Doctor Who. So we'll watch one of those right. and kind of get introduced to Patrick Troughton. So that's sort of our All history right. here. And with that, we will see you next week with an adventure in space and time. Well, no, I'm not exactly, no, I'm not brassed off. It's, it's just the, um, uh, it's the association of this, uh, of the Dalek uh, question, you know, this mechanical, mobile object that um, I'm, begin I'm beginning to find, you know, distracting. And they were, they were difficult to play, play to, because they're not, you're not looking into human eyes, you know what I mean? You're looking at a metal object moving about with a voiceover. But it's so much captured the public imagination. I know it did, yeah. Do you think you'll ever shake it off? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How? Oh, of course. By, by making a success in something else. That's an actor's job. No, not necessarily. It's just as I say, it all depends on the, the script and the type of part that comes along. I don't like, um... I don't like anything blue or salacious or suggestive or... Because I'm not that type of actor. This is your debut in pantomime. Do you see your future in pantomime? No. No. Why not? No. Well, it's, it's uh, because I'm not a pantomimic uh, artist in that respect. What do you lack? You know, it's, 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 uh, it's never appealed to me to be in pantomime. Really. It's never appealed to me that way. I want it. What qualities are there in pantomime that you feel you haven't got? Well, I wouldn't say there are any qualities in uh, it's the, the word quality in pantomime. It, it, it isn't that at all. It's, it's, um, it's a different technique which lends itself only to what I call a variety type of actor, the actor who is used to playing on his own in a, in, in a front class, which is a variety actor. But I'm not. I'm legitimate. I'm a legitimate character actor of the theatre and film. Do you feel pantomime isn't legitimate? Yes. 
It isn't Virginia. It isn't, no. No. Why do you think children like you? Because you're rather a grumpy sort of person. Oh, yeah. I think it, 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 <clears throat> as I've said before, they, they find me a cross between the Wizard of Oz, Oz and Father Christmas, you know. Do you sing in this? Uh, yes, oh, yes. Are you a good singer? Well, I, wa I was a, a good singer years ago, but I'm not now. What about dancing? Yeah, years ago, yes. I don't dance anymore. I don't want it. Too old and too, sort of, aren't it? This pantomime ends this week. Uh, what does the future hold for you after this? Well, then I don't quite know. I've got a manager who looks after my affairs, you see, and... Uh, I would have thought um, you would have looked after your affairs. You no. seem to me to be a person who very much knows his own mind well, about I, what he wants to do. I do, but it's always better to have a representative. Uh, you see, that is my business acumen. I want somebody to talk turkey. I don't want them to come to me. Because I haven't sufficient patience to break.